What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome back to the Roster Watch Podcast. This is Alex Dunlap. Today, I bring you my conversation with Sigmund Bloom. Sig is a co-owner at Football Guys, which is one of the first and one of the largest really premium fantasy football advice and strategy websites in the world. Um, he covers the NFL year-round over there as well as on his podcasts. Uh, his, his pods are entitled The Audible and On the Couch with Sigmund Bloom, respectively. So if, if you're listening to this podcast, you likely already follow him on Twitter, but if not, you can find him there. It's at Sigmund Bloom, S-I-G-M-U-N-B-L-O-O-M. You will recognize the large yellow sea monster that is in his avatar that is commonly retweeted onto your timelines if, if you happen to not follow him. Um, in this little bit of everything episode, we talk about the ways that Austin Texans has changed, uh, which is a subject near and dear to my heart for sure. And we talk about how Sig, he's fallen head over heels in love with his newly adopted hometown of New Orleans, which we both agree remains like no other place in the world. It's the kind of pod you could only expect from a guest like Sigmund Bloom meaning we, we, we go in-depth on a few different issues and go on a few <laughs> tangents. Um, as a Steelers fan, Sig has a uh, big, big, big uh, place in his heart for the, Steel- for the Steelers and everything happening in Pittsburgh. So we talk about the future of that running game, what's going to happen with Le'Veon Bell, you know, presumably once he's gone, James, the role of James Conner, the role of Jalen Samuels. We ponder Antonio Brown's early 2019 ADP versus that of Juju Smith-Schuster. And the twists and turns along the way even include Sig reciting one of his favorite Jack Kerouac poems, of course. <laughs> so uh, if you're enjoying the podcast and you like the volume with which these are coming out, please rate it and review it. I see a few reviews came in last week with some questions. If you ask the questions on Apple Podcasts, we will get to them at some point here on the pod. That's a guarantee. And it's also a great way to support us, to help move us up the charts by rating and reviewing the podcast. We see you doing it and we thank you. And if you really, really, really want to support Roster Watch and, and you really want to support this pod, you can get access to multiple bonus podcasts per week featuring me, Byron Lambert, and the Trash Man with a pro membership at rosterwatch.com. And please remember, it's entirely due to the support of listeners like you that this is all possible. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now, on to my conversation with one of the GOATs, one of the OGs. He's all the acronyms as far as the fantasy football industry. He is Sigmund Bloom. This is Jalen Samuels, and you're listening to Roster Watch. Ladies and gentlemen, Roster Watch Nation, welcome back to the epic Roster Watch podcast brought to you by rosterwatch.com. My name is Alex Dunlap and as I talked about in the open, we have a true goat of the fantasy football industry, a guy who I consider a good friend, something of a mentor, a dude that I've looked up to for my entire career here in this space. His name is Sigmund Bloom of Football Guys. Sig, what the hell's going on, brother? Oh, it's wonderful to 
get to talk to you, Alex. Um, and <laughs> I can remember you and Byron being out on the road before everybody uh, started coming to the Shrine game in the Senior Bowl. Before, uh, I think we may be turning the corner. I think the draft and draft media is really becoming. Um, a fixture in the cycle now. And there's so many people doing great work. Uh, I think that uh, we're seeing also stuff that you all were doing at roster watch back when we were doing it at football guys and on the audible, really tying the whole process together uh, through fantasy football. You care about fantasy football. Then here's a reason to care about every single thing that happens on the calendar. And it just enriches your understanding and experience of football, which is what brought us uh, into this in the first place. And then of course I have to say, because I know that you're not always, uh, you know, uh, boastful or braggadocious about this, but your high school teammate, <laughs> Drew Brees, yeah. he really is uh, worshipped here. I'm living in New Orleans now. Uh, you see Brees for Mayor 2021, and it's not just what he's done for the football team; it's what he does for the community, and not just what he does for the community in terms of charity work or things like that. But he's out in the community. You know, he's he is a member of the community and not in some way that he's graced with your presence. Uh, he's gracing you with his presence. But he is a real member of the community here, much like the Mannings. You know, I live uh, in the lower garden district and you'll you will see them. The Mannings live right up the street in the garden district and you'll just see them. You'll see the family out. And, uh, you know, it goes back to kind of to Archie Manning and what he meant to this community. So uh, I know you can look back and um, just think who could have ever predicted it all would have gone like this? Uh, it, it's quite a thing to watch time pass and see the stories that reveal themselves. Well, it's just so weird because, yeah, yeah, it's um, uh, you said a bunch of stuff that I wanted that I'd like to expand on from this that first, from yeah. that first intro. But 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 I and I want to get back to this stuff about the content, the, the off season content, how that this stuff started out just as a way for us to bridge the gap, you know, from, from the end of the football season to the beginning of the next one. And then how it's sort of taken on a life of its own over the course of the last few years. But first I wanted to ask you about just about new Orleans. You've been in Austin for the longest time. And I guess during the whole time that you were here, I never really, I just always kind of figured that you were from Boston or something like, or, you know, from around here or ended up here and it was sort of your spot. I know that you, your fiance, her job took you there to new Orleans. Like how long were you in, in Austin? Mm-hmm. I actually, yeah, yeah. I arrived in 1997 for law school, but really I went to law school at university of Texas at Austin okay. as an excuse to move to Austin. Okay. Um, I saw slacker, and uh, that that I said I want to be in that place. Yeah. I want to be in a place where people. F- f- what I took out of it was you can do what you want to do just because you want to do it for no other reason, uh, because you like doing it kind of like why we do football work. You know, we're not going to get rich doing this. We're not going to get famous doing this, but we like doing our work and every day we get to get up and have this to look forward to instead of other things people have to do with their day jobs. And Austin in 1997. And I know I still, I think Alex, I think it's actually a hallmark of Austin history that even you can go back to the 1850s and they'd say, Austin's great, but so many new people are coming and they're changing it. And it's not what it used to be. It's just, uh, it's just the nature of Austin. So even when I got there in 1997, people were saying, well, it's not as good as it was. It's not as good as it was before the drag started getting taken over by chains. It's not as good as it was in the seventies before people really even knew what was going on in Austin. And and it was kind of free reign. Um, but indeed what I found in Austin 
and I'll, I'm I'm long winded, Alex. So you know, and your <laughs> listeners all the way. Yes, yes. Uh, it, but and, and when I got there, I, I indeed found what I was hoping for. It's a, was a place of truly original people, interesting people, going off on their own trip, on their own path. And you're one of those people for sure. I mean, your story is, is, is wonderfully unique and a true Austin story of everything, all the elements that it mixes in. And, um, you could work a service job, make a service job wage, you not even full time and afford your rent. And everybody kind of looked after each other and hooked each other up. So you could live a good life at the restaurants and bars and events and things like that. If you were part of the close knit scene, it was really like a small town. Everybody knew each other. You saw the same faces everywhere you went. And somewhere along the way, um, starting with the dot-com boom, The rest of the world realized what Austin has, originality, uh, intellectual capital, intellectual, an intellectual resource, like like it could be strip mined intellectually. And and, and the rest of the world realized that. And now what Austin has has been commodified and it's a different place. And there's still kernels and pieces of that original community, but the cost of living is outrageous. Um, The number of people – like. I always cited like the kite flying festival. The kite flying festival used to be this big open space where everyone just got together and flew their kites. Now you can't even move to (laughs) fly your kite at the (laughs) kite flying festival, you know? Yeah. And, and, and it just slowly, but surely, I think everybody who's lived in Austin for a long time, one by one would see different people. They knew leave, uh, because it just wasn't necessarily the place, the people who made Austin, Austin, it isn't necessarily hospitable for them anymore. And there's still a lot of great, great things about Austin. Anybody, everybody traveled to Austin. It's a great, good time city. It's a great eating and drinking and merriment city. But when it comes to eating and drinking and merriment, there's never, there's no topping new Orleans. And ever since the first time I came to new Orleans, which was very soon after moving from uh, down to Austin, since it was striking distance, uh, could drive there. Um, I heard the siren song and, it's real. Um, it's, this is a different place. This is a different place than any other place in the United States. I've heard it said, don't think of New Orleans as the least organized city in the United States. Think of it as the most organized city in the Caribbean. Uh, <laughs> so, um, it's That's so funny. It's perfect, right? <laughs> Things it's definitely perfect. move at a slower pace in the Caribbean. Yeah. They certainly do down in New Orleans, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and if you don't like it, and you're, it, it, then you don't have to stay here. Then right. don't come here. Right. And if, right. if you don't, if that, if this music is not your beat, then then that's okay. The city doesn't care. You know, the city's going to keep going on on its beat as we've seen like through Katrina and it's changed too. And look, there are plenty of people that say the same thing about new Orleans. Oh, it's changing. It's not the same, but it's still so strong. And the soul here, the richness of the spiritual and emotional side of life is unmatched anywhere in the U S uh, and it's, it's, it's really been agreeing with me and, you know, Alex, I'm sure I'll have the story six months from now, 12 months from now, they'll say, well, this is the flip side of new Orleans. You know, um, new Orleans is still a place that has seemingly random crime. I don't think random crime is, is something that occurs very much anywhere else, but here, you know, there's still things that happen that are inexplicable, uh, and, there's, it's still a place where simple things can be difficult. You know, if you were going to start a business, for instance, it's not the same as other places where you do these things and you can start your business. It it can be very frustrating. Um, the trains don't run, always run on time, you know, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the meantime, 
um, the ordinary is extraordinary here. Um, there's nothing that everything is special and it's not because people make it special. Although people do make it special. It's because it's life is special all the time, every day. And in, in new Orleans, that is kind of put on a pedestal as the, the value that everything is organized around. Well, and I, I just, I think that it's, uh, you have such a beautiful way of putting it. That really is a much better way of describing new Orleans than I ever could, but it just, it really embodies, um, really embodies sort of the just I just I don't know if it's like a some kind of voodoo magic or something that you right. know something when you get around there there's something special about it it's like you're whisked away in some kind of spell and um I, so I can certainly see how you've sort of you know you've definitely sort of romanticized the idea of living there and that's really cool because you 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 know you draw so much of your inspiration from your surroundings and and whenever whenever I think about Austin and it's funny like right now I'm, I'm in my mom's apartment off of 45th street because I just had a doctor's appointment and I dropped my son off over here um and this was the you know this was the time when we had scheduled for the pod and just so it's it's different because I've I, I've recently moved out to Lake Travis and kind of live out on mm-hmm. the lake it feels a lot more like sort of where I grew up in out sort of West Lake, sort of in more of the rolling hills of Austin and stuff like that and to me you know, ever since I moved out there, I felt so much more inspired just because of the views and because of mm-hmm. the, you know, because of the, the, the big, the big hills. And, you know, you could go down to the lake and sort of be around the creeks and all that stuff that the stuff that I sort of grew up with, I, I, I find it like a, like a magic in it. And I found myself sort of more inspired now. And I totally understand what you say too about Austin. You know, I've been here since, since 1981, not yet. Yeah. Or eight, yeah, eight, eight, 1981 was when my dad got me back here. Um, but so he got me back as soon as he possibly could. I was born in Chicago and whenever we moved here, even back then, and this was back when Westlake Hills and Rollingwood Sig, Rollingwood, which is like yeah. literally a stone. It was, wa- the, it was still wild, Cowboys, right? That, that was cedar chopper territory. Yeah. That was like, you lived out in the sticks. And so, I mean, clearly, you know, through my whole life, it's always been about the Californians. They're moving in, they're ruining everything. Mm-hmm. And it did, it didn't really seem like it, things changed really that much or hit a critical mass until these last few years. And I don't know if that's just me coming of age or whether that's just finally hitting the critical mass or what it was, but I kind of had to move a little bit out of the, out of the fray as, as well. And from, from where you are, where you sit right now in new Orleans, you have the, I guess, so you said you live down in what the lower garden district. Yeah. And so that's where the Mannings, like, is that where Odell Beckham's folks came from too and stuff? I'm not sure about Odell Beckham's roots here, but you know, lower garden is, um, adjacent to like central business district, central city, where there's a lot of roots of jazz there. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's close. It's on the main, we're really close half a block from the main Mardi Gras parades, uh, the route, the uptown route on the St. Charles streetcar line, um, on St. Charles Avenue. And, you know, it's funny cause you talk about the spell or the voodoo. Um, and, and really what's incredible is because the city turned 300 last year, there's, there's amazing history everywhere. The, the names of the streets are history. You know, you go down to Frenchman street from, and that's what all the, these different cultures too. That came yeah. Next. Yeah. It's the true melting pot. It, I mean, I've heard New, New York is the salad bowl. New Orleans is truly the melting pot, um, where these cultures turn into something that isn't quite like any of them individually. Um, and so hopefully something greater than, than any of them and a, a true sense of sharing. But I, I would put it this way, the spell or the voodoo. And I felt it when I came before Katrina in, in 1997 immediately. And it's what Mardi Gras kind of stands for, right? This idea that, well, Lent's going to start. Things are going to get real austere, belt tightening, serious. So let's eat, drink, and be merry today. 
because who knows what tomorrow is going to bring. And everybody knew like the city's literally sinking. Uh, everybody talked about the bowl back then. Hurricane Betsy in 1965 devastated the lower ninth. Um, and everybody knew that things were somewhat precarious. I mean, again, the land is literally washing him into the ocean. They're losing the land right. here around New Orleans. And everybody knew that if there was a direct hit, I don't think anybody envisioned Katrina, but everybody knew that it, it's a bowl. It's a city where there shouldn't be a city really now. The Atchafalaya wants to capture the Mississippi. The Mississippi should have jumped to a different route. There's the wonderful story by John McPhee from the 80s. I can't remember the name of it. It was in the New Yorker. You can find it about that stretch where the like the Atchafalaya River, like it's natural for rivers to like jump. They, he, I think he describes it like the left hand of a piano player, what the Mississippi has done over the years, like over say 10,000 years. It's jumped through all these different channels because of the nature of river flow, like a, a feedback loop, like the, the more the smaller river captures, the deeper the channel gets, the faster the flow gets. And and eventually like this, the, the dominant channel gets so built up with the silt that it brings that it actually slows, and then one that's going faster captures it. But there's so much industrial interest along the path from Baton Rouge to New Orleans that there's too much money invested to let the Mississippi do what it actually wants to do. So the Army Corps of Engineers built this contraption. And, and anyway, it's you know, humans versus nature, basically. It's one of the best humans versus nature story, and that, that's front and center here. So everyone always knew that it was precarious. New Orleans isn't a precarious – I mean it's built on silt. It's right. not built on, yeah. on land. It's built on silt that came down from the glaciers. And it's below um, sea level. <laughs> yeah. And you're surrounded and by not, sea. Yeah. And, so, and, and so water. It's all a dream anyway, this whole thing. Right. And, and everybody has lived that way. Like, let's live today. That's the value here. Not saving for tomorrow or projecting well into the future. It's about making today as good as it can be. And you can get into larger discussions of whether that's a good value or a bad value or how to mix that in. But that's the ethos of the city. And that's what Mardi Gras is about. And that's what people's lives are about here. And, and it's it's beautiful. It's, it's, um, it, it's inspiring. And I think that everybody still is well aware here, again, to how precarious climate change, et cetera, et cetera. But, but in the face of that, nobody's changing at all. No, nobody's pe – people here aren't discouraged by that or disparaged by that. It's, it's still about today, and that's the spell, I think, that it puts people under. And it can make you, like, balloon up to – if I, if I didn't have restraint, Alex, I'd be, like, 400 – I, oh, I wouldn't be 400 pounds yet. I'd be like, I would have gained like 25 I couldn't see 400 pounds on, you on, know what I'm saying, on your frame. It's yeah. incredible. It's just incredible. Yeah. And, um, and everything is so – like like the foods and everything is so yeah. rich. Like it's very yeah. – very whimsical and extravagant with with with, yes. with how things are, and and the thing is, I th I find it so interesting because you're right. It's like maybe it is that sense. It's of you know, the you know let's let's be merry because we never know when the you know when the end's going to come with all the you know with the with the basically with the imminent risk that's surrounding you. And but see what's different about New Orleans and what's what the sort of celebration that seems to come out of that is just different from what you have in a place that faces similar risks like up in parts of Washington around like Mount Baker and the Glacier Peak and Mount Rainier wherever one of these th one of these things is going to go off and like in the low lying areas they they don't have infrastructure in in place to 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 save everybody they simply don't but it's such beautiful land um people you know people just want to want to live there but it just doesn't seem like it comes 
also equipped with that sort of cultural phenomenon of that. Um, you go to New Orleans, man, and like even me, I go to the, even the, the most touristy places, and I'm whisked. I'm whisked away. Yeah. It's like it's like I'm in a different. Uh, almost yeah. like you're in a different place in time. Do you still go to the touristy spots? Sure, yeah. sure. I mean, the French Quarter means something different. It's just like Sixth Street in Austin. It means something a little right, different right. when you live there than it does when you're just visiting. But even Cafe Du Monde or, or going to get a hurricane at Pat O'Brien's or or what have you. Or some beignets still, at one of these spots. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And it still feels just as special. Um, and it, it's 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 all legendary because there's so much energy and so much memory there to these places. So absolutely it's all we're celebrating. It's all overwhelming, over stimulating. Um, so I, I just, I, I can't, I can't say enough for it. And look, it's just one of those self sorting things. Some people come to new Orleans and it, it drives them up the wall and it's just not for them. But if it is for you and those of you listening and your listeners are being very generous. Cause I mean, I, I, we haven't, we talked about, I guess we mentioned Peyton Manning. We mentioned Drew, <laughs> Drew Brees. So there's, there's our, there's and I our, asked about Odell Beckham. Exactly. So there's there's our football connection there. Yeah, well, we'll get to football in just one second. But I got to ask you first about I haven't met your fiance. How does she feel? How does she feel being uh, being engaged to a to a football degenerate such as yourself? How do you manage to keep all that stuff straight? Well, I think that um, she's patient. (laughs) <laughs> and, I, and and this is good for the and you know our our audience is often made up of our fellow content creators. Right. I think it's important to have boundaries. I've learned to have having boundaries is very important in saying like this time between this and this time, I'm not going to look at Twitter, not going to see if there's anything new on the newswire, and I'm going to be fully present. That's what New Orleans is about too, right? Being always being fully present in the moment sure. and being fully present. But also, she's she's an incredible football mind of her own. We've joked that she should just start a fantasy advice service and just fade me, just give the opposite advice of whatever I give. She'll become like the biggest thing in fantasy football. But she, you know, we do um, DFS. She puts in her own DFS lineups. We were watching the Super Bowl, and she said, oh, uh, the fact that the Patriots, spent, even though the score is tied, the fact the Patriots are spending so much time on offense is going to catch up to the Rams. And sure enough, Josh McDaniel said during halftime to them, we've run 44 plays in the first half. That's going to be a good thing for us later in the game, (laughs) you know, you know, she's watching the game and she's just intuitively picking up on these things. You know, she's, she is understanding. She's saying that, you know, Belichick, she loves Belichick and she has, you know, Belichick, she, we're watching the game and she's saying Belichick's ridden these guys so hard and they hate it, but now they understand why, because it's at this point in the season that being ridden so hard back in like July and August matters. And sure enough, that's what Stephon Gilmore says after the game, you know, we hate it. Sometimes even when we lose, it feels like we we win, it feels like we lose because it's so hard, but it's all worth it. Um, so she's 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 going to be a football mind that's going to surpass all of us if she decides that's what she wants to do. Well, we better keep keep our eye out for 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 her then. Absolutely, uh, you guys. So you guys, do you have any date in mind as far as when the when the actual marriage is going to uh, happen? Or just... wait until we're going to move to New Orleans? Maybe on Fat Tuesday. You know, in Irish culture, um, <laughs> that would be Shrove, awesome. Shrove Tuesday. Shrove Tuesday is a very auspicious day to get married. But Fat Tuesday here is insane. Yeah, I mean, it's truly like the Canadian wave that catches you. Dionysian. Go ahead. I've, I've been there. I've been there sometimes during um, just during the actual like, you know, during parts of Mardi Gras. How long does that last? Does it last a couple of weeks and then it ends on Fat Tuesday? 
two weeks technically. Well, okay, technically there's Twelfth Night, which is uh, twelve days after Christmas, and that kicks off Carnival season. That's when you can. That's when you're allowed to start eating king cakes again. It's bad luck to eat a king cake outside of Carnival season. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, the debate over the best king cake. It's it's hotter and more important than the debate over the best barbecue in Central Texas or whatever. That, that, that's impossible. I'm impossible. telling you. <laughs> I'm telling you. Right. No, I know. I know. And and then there are certain things I really miss about Austin already. You know, one in a million and, and habanero oh, and other nice. things. Yeah. But at the same time, like the king cake, it's 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 a big big deal. And you start getting your king cakes then. But the first real parade, there's actually a parade here called um, Chewbacca's. It's this weekend. It's outside of the two weeks of Mardi Gras. People say it's like the transplants and hipters. It's a it's a sci-fi. It's a newer sci-fi. And look, Mardi Gras is not an official event. There's no official body of Mardi Gras. It's just made up of the people of New Orleans doing their own crews and sub crews and the, all the costumes and throws. Everyone purchases it all themselves. It's not sponsored. It's not commercial. Oh, that's weird. It's, yeah. it's it's a show. So they call it like the biggest free show in the world because it's all put on by the people. It's like a show where you don't pay admission and the people who put on the show pay for everything. And it, it's a it, it's it's a, it's a massive community involvement. It's really still even though people come from out of town for Mardi Gras, it's still mostly for the community. Um, and it's about two weeks. Um, it really is supposed to kick into gear about two weeks before, week and a half before Fat Tuesday, with coming to the absolute pinnacle crescendo on fat Tuesday. And it's really, I I, I told people, and this is when you come like, if you're like 18, 19, 20, 21, whatever lines you think you have, like that you won't cross come to Mardi Gras, they disappear. Yeah, it's, it's, it really is, man. I've, I've been, it's, um, I've never been there on fat Tuesday, but I've heard that's when things get, you know, that's like the last day before everybody's got to go back to being good again, I guess, for Lynn yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. but, but uh, yeah, definitely, man. It's it's a really special place. I'm su- I'm super pumped that you that you enjoy it there so much. And I, it's a place that I typically go you know, find myself there once every couple of years. So you know, next time I'll have to yes. look you up. You can show me to show me where the like the real good food is and stuff that the tourists don't yeah. don't all know about. Right. <laughs> and it's everywhere. Yeah. All right. So. Uh, just just to segue somewhat into football, did you guys get caught up in the um, in the whole? You know, I mean, do, do do you follow the Saints more closely now? Oh, did you get sure. caught up in the stuff with the sure. uh, with with the uh, with the swindle there at the end of the game with mm-hmm. with Nico Roby Coleman and uh, Tommy wow. Lee Lewis. Let me tell you, we could do a whole show on this. <laughs> um, they will not forgive, and they will not forget. I don't think so either, man. Ever. Right. Ever. Really, ever. But that doesn't, it doesn't, it hasn't hurt their spirit or anything like that. I'll say this. I'm, uh, I'm originally, I was born in Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Um, I, for six years when I was a kid, I lived in in New Mexico and El Paso, but I came back when I was seven in 1982. And, um, I mean, I'm a born and bred Steelers fan. Um, I, it's all tattooed on my soul, and I used to believe that no community was crazier, more connected to their team than Pittsburgh, and I was wrong. It's it, it, it's it even surpasses Pittsburgh, and I don't want to speak for the entire Pittsburgh fan base when I say this, but just as a way I can sum this up, maybe the difference in two black and gold teams, and Green Bay deserves a mention here too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it the difference between New Orleans and Pittsburgh is that when when New Orleans loses the fans still love the team. 
not always that way in Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, <laughs> obviously, is you know, yeah. in, in Pittsburgh you get more finger pointing, and this guy's got to go, and that guy's got to go. And yeah. in New Orleans, it's almost like the team is their children. The pe- way people feel about the Saints is the way people feel when they go watch their kid play football for the high school team or something like that, or even little league. Bay. You know, it's it's a, an affection. It's rooted in a deep, it's very deep southern and caring, right? It's not. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a little bit less of a. It's a little bit less of like a. You know, a, a sort of like the the ideals of like a hard handed, like father that works in the steel mills all day and right. comes home and, you know, it's, a, it seems more like the kind of the caring, you know, Cajun. Right. We're, proud. we're right. still proud of you. Yeah. We're, we, we're still so happy that you, you, you're our team. <laughs> it's so and crazy. It, yeah. It's, it's, but it's, it is Alex, the crime drops when the saints are playing, the, the city comes to a halt. Like we went to an oyster festival on the day of the NFC championship game and they just stopped it for four hours and put the game up on the big screens everywhere. They the just oyster stopped. Festival sounds amazing. Yeah. Oh, and then every, and it's every week. It's every, every week. There's something like that. Oh every single God. week here. And Austin and Austin's getting there. I mean, Austin is a good time city too, with the terms of like every week you come to Austin, there's going to be good, good times to be had there. Yeah, so I don't fresh think. seafood like that. No. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's amazing. It's like, it's so awesome about the, um, well, uh, you said that you're a big Steelers guy. This is a yeah. here's a here's a question that I've that I've had. Um, if 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 we can just talk a little bit about fantasy be, before I let you get back to your business here, um, yeah. I'm looking at these early best ball ADPs, and for one, I think you know, we talked about it earlier. You know, bridging the content gap from, or you didn't really talk about bridging the content gap, but you talked about how it was sort of what we did. You know, to kind of figure out what we're going to do after the football season's over, and we all kind of got on the road and, you know, always saw each other out at the different events and everything like that. I feel like one of the things that really helps with kind of getting through the off season these days is, has been the advent of best ball. And I've been really pleased with how, how popular it seems to have gotten with, with a lot of folks. And it gives you, it really helps me at least to start wrapping my mind a little bit early around how things are going to be shaping up for redraft season. And it's looking like, I mean, if you drafted right now for 2019, you at in the in a twelve team draft in the middle of round two, you know, you're. It's very likely that you'll be staring down the barrel of of two guys mm-hmm. with back to back ADPs of Antonio Brown and Juju Smith Schuster, and in that situation, like, how do you see it playing out? I mean, you, I guess we still have to wait and find out what's going to be going on with Antonio Brown if he gets traded to San Francisco, or you know, how how all that ends up working out. But for one. If if you were in a best ball league right now and you were picking at two point zero six, and let's say that all the all the um, all the running backs that you were interested in were off the board, and I guess probably there's a whole tangential conversation to have here, you know, saying like, well, might you take a tight end in that spot anyway, considering the way, you know, but all all those things out of it, just in, in a vacuum, it's Antonio Brown knowing what we know right now, and it's Juju. Who do you like better, and how do you feel about that overall situation? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, we could go off on a tangent here about Bell and Connor and when do you take them and what's going to happen there too. And it's a situation with a lot of uncertainty. Um, I think that Juju's the safe pick and Antonio Brown is the pick who could return his traditional top five overall value, or we could see the bottom drop out in Brown terms and him be more of a, a, a wide receiver two, wide receiver three, kind of like what happened to Jarvis Landry last year where on a new team, there are games where he is the focal point of the pass offense and puts up the numbers you're used to getting from him. But then there are games where he might only catch two or three balls. And 
obviously what we're trying to gauge here is what are the chances that he ends up back on the Steelers. And on one hand where Alex, we were having this conversation, say a month ago, we'd say, Oh, 1% or 2%. Right. Yeah. With, with every passing day now it's 18% or 19%. I agree. And you keep hearing things like no team is going to give them anything close to what they're looking for. Uh, you, you hear things now where Art Rooney is stepping back and saying, well, maybe there's a chance it will get patched up. There are members of the Steelers saying maybe it could get worked out. Um, and the more time that passes, the more like that is. I think the combine is going to be when we really find out uh, if something's going to go down, when everyone gets collected in, in Indianapolis and has a chance to talk in person. But on one side of the scale, you have that. And, and the thing is, Brown's contract is extremely reasonable for what he can give you. Um, but you also have the idea of the volatility, knowing that basically Antonio Brown, starting with that video that came out of the Steelers locker room last year at the end of the year, mm-hmm. broke the trust of his teammates. Mm-hmm. And you, you can speak to this more than I can, because I, I, last time I went out for football, it was like sixth grade and I, I practice was too much work and not enough play. And I was like, ah, I'd rather play basketball or tennis, you know, bas- basketball or something. But that locker room is, in, is inviolate. And when you, it's like infidelity in a marriage. Like when you break that trust, in some cases you can never rebuild it. And I don't even know if he's out to rebuild it. He's, you know, he's taken it off of his Twitter profile and he's already making overtures and I don't think he wants to go back. And I don't know that the team would accept him with open arms if he was brought back. So it's possible he could remain a stealer and still not be that focal point of the offense that he was before. But I think that once, once it's, it's just like, even though it was flawed, like Mike Tomlin's idea, like, well, if you produce, we can overlook some things. I think once the game starts, all that stuff's forgotten, even though it can come right back emotionally when the game is over. So I still think that, I mean, the best case scenario for Brown is he remains a stealer. And I think the chances of that are going up. And I, I think that because of my nature as a best ball drafter, I'm trying to build as much ceiling into my team as I can. And I don't think Juju Smith-Schuster without Antonio Brown is going to put up Antonio Brown numbers. Mm-hmm. I think only Antonio Brown could put up Antonio Brown numbers. And I would probably take the chance on him in the second, knowing there's risk, but also knowing I can basically get another top five pick in the second round. We're talking about, I mean, I can't believe we're talking about, you know, I could take the risk on Antonio Brown in 2019 in the mid second, it's like how how quickly things change with our with our perceptions of these guys. I just, I think Sig, do you? Th- I mean, did something change with Antonio? I mean, we don't know these guys personally, but we certainly mm-hmm. follow them as as closely as anybody else. It's, I mean, it's kind of our job. Did something change with Antonio Brown's personality? Yeah, well, I think so. That, like, Go ahead. What, like, what do you? Th- I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's to me, it just to me, it seems like. He didn't all – all right, so whenever he got the the big – the first big contract extension, I believe that was around the time they were letting Mike Wallace go, right? And it was Antonio Brown getting the big contract extension because he was being the good soldier and the team player and the guy that was seemingly the one that the organization uh, thought of as sort of like the, the model of how they wanted these players to right. be. And it, it just sort of seems like over the course of time, I don't know what's happened if his relationship is soured with the organization, whether it's just he kind of let things go to his head because he is such an immensely talented player. But do you feel like his personality sort of changed? Sure. I mean, that's absolutely what happened. And I, 
I think absolutely comes back to success, overwhelming success. And then and this is kind of a crude and oversimplified way to put it, but it's like, you think your farts don't smell, you know, <laughs> right. like, like you just, you, 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 the whole, we all put our pants on one leg at a time kind of thing. And maybe Antonio Brown's rich enough to have a machine that like puts his pants on for him or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and you start to feel like you're the source of everything. You're the reason right. that you've had all this success and none of us stand alone ever. And again, with your long experience in the music business, I'm, it's, I'm sure it's a very familiar story in the music business too, where a band, and what makes the band so special is is the 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 teamwork, the way that everybody oh, becomes yeah. part of something greater than themselves. But then once you have success, people think, well, I am greater than this band or I am the reason the band is successful. And then it all starts to fall apart. And it's just the nature of success and and keeping true to the values that got you to that success when you get that success. And it, it's it's something that I think people still haven't totally figured out how to do. Well, it's 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 gonna be fascinating to see how it plays out with Antonio Brown, and I think you know you sort of alluded to it. I, I mean, I'm not gonna let you get off the pod without talking some about um, about Le'Veon Bell, James Conner, yeah. I mean, because here we have James Conner going at like 9.6 right now, so it's looking like he's gonna be a mid to late round pick. Uh, and I mean, I think rightfully so. Uh, Le'Veon Bell right now. An 11.3 ADP over on the draft app, which is 0.5 PPR. Who knows where it's going to be on MFL 10s, which is full point PPR. And then, so let's just talk. Let's talk about Connor first, because with Connor, here's here's my quagmire. Because if we knew it was going to be James Connor of the first eight weeks of the eight to ten weeks of the season, you just say, you know, that's an insta call right there at the end of the first round. Uh, certainly worth taking, even above the, say, the Nick Chubbs of the world, maybe even above a Le'Veon Bell right now, who you don't know necessarily know where he's going to end up. With that being said, at the end of the, I I loved Jalen Samuels through the pre-draft process. I loved him at the Senior Bowl. I thought that once he got his opportunity to play, especially when Connor wasn't available, he sort of showed that he can go in and be, I mean, basically as effective as James Connor was, who was basically as effective as Le'Veon Bell was. And I think to myself the whole time uh, under under Tomlin that we've been able to have these uh, these sort of RB ones out of that Pittsburgh backfield it's sort of in the mold of Le'Veon Bell whether it was Le'Veon or whether it was when Le'Veon was hurt we had D'Angelo Williams or whenever Le'Veon wasn't playing we had James Conner or when James Conner wasn't playing we had Jalen Samuels very few times have we seen a true committee where these players split but I I just I don't know whether or not that's going to continue to hold true coming into uh, coming into the 2019 season because it seems like Jalen Samuels has done enough to sort of show that he might, you know, bite into some piece of the pie. But on the other side of that, I think to myself, well, maybe it's just like a system there and it's just a way of doing things that, you know, Tomlin must like from the very top to just let, you know, feed one guy and feature one guy, let him get warmed up and let him get going with the flow of the game. It's been a really good uh, it's been a really successful strategy for them so far. How do you like? Have you thought about those things, and how do you like? How do you clean that up inside your head with all the different yeah. forces pulling you these different ways? You did a tremendous job of uh, telling the story of how the Steelers' backfield has gone. Uh-huh. That it's usually, almost always, really just one guy, and whoever that guy is, unless it's like 
Fitzgerald Toussaint or something like that. Um, <laughs> Stephen Ridley. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, man, don't say that name to a Steeler fan. Oh, man. Yeah, right. Yeah. Anyway, that guy has been an elite fantasy running back one. Every, you know, like you said, Bell to Williams to Bell to Connor. Uh, and it's because it's been so successful and because they've been so faithful to that. It, you would think when projecting the 2019 season that James Conner is going to be that guy. He certainly didn't do anything. Well, he didn't do anything on the field to discourage them from doing that. He showed he could handle every part of the role. However, he did wear down as the season went on. And and then maybe somewhat to their surprise, um, Jalen Samuels, we all knew he was one of the best receiving running backs in the draft. Remember, some even had him classified as a tight, tight end. end. Well, he was, he, uh, he was at the combine as a tight end. Right. And, but then he, he's a great runner too. Yeah. He looks like fantastic as a runner and rational coaching, which we don't always get would dictate (laughs) that you would use these guys to spell each other and allow, allow the defenses to get flummoxed by having to deal with two different running backs who can really run all the plays and do all the things in the offense. Maybe James Conner's a better inside runner to some extent, Samuels is a better receiver, but they can be interchangeable. And why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you do something more like what the saints had did with say Ingram and Kamara, who they weren't necessarily interchangeable, but they both got enough work for fantasy to be in, in 2017, at least top 12 running backs. Sure. Now maybe, maybe the pie in Pittsburgh isn't that big, but it can certainly be big enough to make two guys who you're in your lineup every single week. And that would be rational to me. So where the rubber meets the road, am I spending a late first round pick on James Conner? No. Am I spending a, and Jalen Samuels is a last round pick right now, or, you know, a fifth round pick. Well, that sounds a lot better to me. Uh, and going wide receiver. If you're, if you're taking, if you end up with a a pick at the turn in an, an early best ball draft and at the turn, you can get what we just talked about him, you know, Antonio Brown. But look, based on early ADP, at the turn, you can often get two of uh, Julio Jones, Odell Beckham, Tyreek Adams, Hill. yeah. Devontae Adams, DeAndre Hopkins, and Michael Thomas are settling into a tier around the 6 to 10 range. So they're not usually there at the end of the first. Uh, they can often, one of them may fall to 10, 11, or 12 sometimes. But still, if I can walk away with Julio Jones and Odell Beckham, and then later on, take my shots at running back because the other larger story based on the wonderful story you told about the Steelers backfield and it's it CJ Anderson and Todd Gurley, right? Running backs interchangeable. The production that is there for a running back is there for any competent running back. An elite running back only adds so much and depending on the situation, I mean, maybe Saquon Barkley got as much as he could get out of that role and an average running back like Jalen Samuels or something like that wouldn't have gotten nearly that much because of the quality of the situation. But the quality of the situation is going to dictate production in most circumstances, which points to, yes, at the top of the draft, those guys that are in a quality situation and do get to do everything. You know, you're Ezekiel Elliott's and we'll see about Gurley. Gurley's going to be a real fascinating one to watch how people react to the postseason. McCaffrey, the other team that will give a running back 90% of the touches. Now it's mm-hmm. Carolina. Um, um, we'll see about Kamara. That's going to be interesting with uh, Mark Ingram. You know, we'll see about um, Melvin Gordon's the other name in there. So after those guys go, then you start getting into the wide receivers. And I do think that because of this question about the Steelers backfield and the limited track record for Connor, that wide receiver makes a lot more sense. Or maybe even somebody 
again, like Nick Chubb, who doesn't have the ceiling of Connor, but doesn't have those questions of somebody that is his equal. So this is wonderful because you you laid it out well when you said best ball has given us a chance to get all these juices flowing right away, even before the Super Bowl's over now. And (laughs) it sets the context for the big questions of the fantasy football season. And I think you've hit on a big one. Well, and and I just I have a couple more big questions. I I I know I'm, I'm very aware that you're you're a busy man, Sig. So I no, just, no, this is wonderful. Oh. I could we could be hanging out. It's Friday afternoon, okay. so, so that's a great. But this keep Martin Wood Friday afternoon in the universe. It's just Friday afternoon. I'm I'm happy to let it let it all un, unfurl and unroll. All right. Well, just a couple, just a couple a couple other questions then that I, I I'd be remiss if I couldn't I, I couldn't get your thoughts on. What about? What about Le'Veon Bell? The system has been so good there in Pittsburgh. We have no idea where he's going to end up. We have no – I mean, it, I, I mean, there's now there's been talk recently about Pittsburgh having to put the transition tag on him or putting possibly putting the transition tag on him, which I don't understand because I think if somebody's going to pay up for what he wants to, it's not like they're ever going to take the opportunity to match. At least I wouldn't think so. Um Based on sort of what I mean, they just they they couldn't they, in 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 their right mind, knowing that they have a guy like Connor there on 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 his contract. Um, but we you know we we've heard rumors. Uh, you know, I saw the ESPN sort of uh, poll come out yesterday where they kind of pulled their beat writers about some fantasy football questions, and one of the te- one of the Texans beat writers thought that like Le'Veon Bell could be an option down there, and that just really blew my hair back to something I'd never thought about, like. It just basically hit me. It's basically just hit me in recent days. Le'Veon Bell could end up somewhere that we didn't, we haven't even thought about, or a situation that we don't even. You know, it's like, what do you like? What do you mean he's he's in Miami? You know, like what? It's like how did how did that happen? So, like, where where are you on on Le'Veon? Do you think that this that the offensive line there in Pittsburgh, with the way that that offense ran, with how just highly functional that offense has been, and how conducive it's been for you know, offensive scoring and with their willingness and their ability to use Le'Veon Bell in the way that he was used as a true offensive weapon, truly as a receiver that's not lined up out of the slot that's or not lined up just out of the backfield and you sort of dump the football off to as a last option. A guy that you line up in the slot and let him run routes and get two-way goes against nickel corners. And, you know, they, 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 you know, they squeezed all the juice out of the, out of the lemon with, with, with that guy. And you don't necessarily know if it's going to happen at the next spot or if there's going to be personnel at the next spots where he's used in a different way, et cetera. So how are you valuing him? Because he's also going right now at the turn at the same spot you were talking about. Some of these wide receivers yeah. could possibly fall. A Connor's usually there. A Nick Chubb is usually there as well. Right. And it gives you the promise, at least in the past of, of that top five overall production before I do that, since we're being indulgent, I've got it. If I said Friday afternoon in the universe, as it is right now for you and I, and every, well, if you're listening to this, it could be at any point during the week. I have to um, quote where that came from. It came from Jack Kerouac actually um, oh, okay. from his poem, from his poem, old angel midnight. Uh, he says, uh, he writes Friday afternoon in the universe in all directions in and out. You got your men, women, dogs, children, horses, ponies, ticks, pervs, parts, pans, pools, pauls, pails, parturiances, and petty thieveries that turn into heavenly Buddha. Anyway, uh, we got to, we got to feed your, we got, we got to feed your soul here too. That sounds and, like something on the back of my, on, on, on the back of my glass of kombucha. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Kombucha, brew, brew your own. They got the big easy bucha here with like Satsumas and all the local it's stuff so in it. Good. Anyway, so, so it's, good. It, 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 it's good. You know, it's, we're, we're, we're in the future now with like gut health, you know, like, yeah. like what goes going on in your gut, it yeah. like filters all the way up or is it the, what's going on at the top level filters down to your gut? Who knows? Uh, the, the chicken or the egg. But anyway, <laughs> the, the 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 chicken or the egg question here is going to be like like you said, do the Steelers control the situation, or do they just let Le'Veon Bell get what he wanted, which is determination over his future? Because starting teasing this apart, starting with the question of what's going to happen with the Steelers and how they handle Bell and floating out there the idea of the transition tag. I mean, it's still very much within their rights to put the transition tag on him. They still have control of him. And you can say good faith, but you might argue that what Le'Veon Bell did wasn't in good faith either. Oh, uh, I mean, and you would win that argument. I mean, right. technically, you, yeah. So why should the Steelers show good faith to him now? And the transition tag wasn't necessarily designed for this, but it can be used for this where you put the transition tag on him. And if somebody signs him to an offer sheet, you match it. And wring whatever you can out of them. I mean, this is kind of how the Dolphins use the transition to uh, the transition, blah, the franchise tag for um, Jarvis Landry last year. Right. You know, um, and you just hold control and you shop them around to the other thirty-one teams, with those teams knowing they're going to have to give this player a big contract, uh, and say, and unlike say the Nick Foles situation in Philly, uh, the transition tag doesn't require the Steelers to. Um, pay out that massive third year, third franchise tag in a row. I'm not even sure how the league would rule on that since Bell didn't play last year, the $25 million or whatever it would be. Um, but they could easily, if they bring a fourth or fifth round pick out of a team that wants levy on Bell and it, it could backfire. Of course, the team could say, well, yeah, we want to sign him to that contract, but not sign him to that contract and pay a fourth round pick or fifth round pick. So maybe it won't work. Um, and maybe Bell sits out again another year. Who knows? Maybe Bell gets caught in some sort of Groundhog Day scenario where the exact same thing happens again. Where the oh, Steelers say, "Well, dear. yeah, that would be a, that'd be a nightmare for that'd be a nightmare for him." That would it, it would be, but it would be within the Steelers' rights to handle it that way. Right. Um, and and if the bad will involved in the situation reigns, maybe they will. Um, but putting all that aside and getting to the idea of well, assuming he's not going to be a Steeler, where is he going to end up, and can he hold? even remotely the same amount of fantasy value as he did. The answer is probably no. And he's probably not going to receive the reception he was expecting in free agency either. He'll be lucky to get the David Johnson money, which was below, at least on a per year basis, what the Steelers would have given him under the franchise tag last year. Uh, I think that he's not going to be received when you look at his suspensions and you look at what happened last year. And just, the, a, and just the climate of the league. It's not a good time for a running back yeah. to be holding up his hand saying, I want a bunch of money. Uh-huh. No, it's just, it's not I a mean, good look at time. There's just a whole, the Rams whole lot Todd of narrative reasons why, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Rams gave Todd Gurley a bunch of money. The Rams gave Todd Gurley the money that Bell's like, that's what I want. And and now they're wondering whether that was a good idea after what happened this year. Yeah. So I think that Bell's going to maybe he'll be lucky to get 10 to $12 million a year. He will be lucky to get, say, 20, 25 million guaranteed. And what are the teams that we can conceivably say have the cap room and the will, the organizational philosophy to sign him the jets i guess well we saw what adam gase did with Kenyon drake there's That's no not, way the colts do it chris no Ballard is not gonna pay for him. no 
Yeah. Um, the maybe the 49ers, but they have money tied up in in McKinnon. Um, the Bucks, the Bucks are interesting. Yeah. Uh, the Bucks I don't is know. one that I keep kind of coming back around to because, like you said about McKinnon, they already made him what the fourth. Like I, I know right. that we just go by guarantees, but as far as the actual sum of the contract, like the fourth highest paid running back in the league, you can't just bring on Le'Veon Bell, you know, especially right. if you ever right. have interest in. Taking on Antonio Brown, and I think even if they don't get Antonio Brown, they might work a deal in the in the draft. I was talking on the podcast just uh, the other day with Ben Albright, and he thinks there's a there could be some sort of connection between the Broncos and the 49ers to get Emmanuel Sanders down sure. there. So like there, you know, I eventually eventually those 49ers are gonna are, are gonna run out of money. And like I mean, you talked about it. There's not there there aren't that. There aren't that many. The more and more I think about it, I'm kind of coming around to it too. There aren't that many places who, what did you say? Who philosophically or who philosophically would want to pay up for a running back in this climate? And yeah. also, you know, and but the important thing is not only do you need to make that qualifier, but you also need to meet the qualifier of having the cap space. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's like it's not going to be easy. It isn't. And so, I mean, maybe Le'Veon Bell, the Buccaneer, is the best case scenario for fantasy football. Would you draft Le'Veon Bell, the Buccaneer, uh, at 110, 111, 112? In Bruce Arians' offense? Yes. Yeah, which what they did with David Johnson, et cetera. That sounds pretty good. Um, maybe even he might go a little higher than that. Um, I don't know if you would take him over that tier of DeAndre Hopkins and Michael Thomas and Devonte Adams, but right after that, he, he looks attractive, which is about where he's going now anyway. But there's a lot of places where I don't want to take him at 110. Uh, so that uncertainty means that he's probably being drafted at his ceiling right now. No, uh, uh, all right. So yeah, I definitely like. I definitely like that he is being drafted at his ceiling right now. And if you can get him after. You know, if you can get him in the second round, something like that, you know, you, you can be getting value right now. But I, 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 t- I totally agree because in what we just talked about was probably best case scenario. And in that scenario, we're taking him right there. So right now, it just follows that he's, he's, he's being drafted uh, basically at, at, at his ceiling uh, there at the, at, at the one-two turn. All right, last, last question for you, Sig. After this season – Let's just say, and let's just say, in like half point PPR. But just, I'm only saying half point PPR, just so we don't, you know, have to quibble too much about whether we're talking, you know, PPR or standard. Yeah. Um, with the tight ends, just with what a advantage it was, not only in best ball, but all, I mean, you, we can go back and look at the best ball drafts from from last year that ended up um, taking down the first prize in all the various MFL tens, and it just goes to show that if you had Travis Kelsey. Zach Ertz uh, or George Kittle, one of those guys, or and, and to, to some degree Eric Ebron, although he doesn't fall into this exact conversation. Um, but if you had one of those guys, you stood a much better chance of of, of, of of taking down your best ball league and a lot of times your redraft league. Now, whenever I make our cheat sheets every year for redraft, I always hate the way that my drafts look. I hate the way that my mock drafts look. I, I don't like the way that my teams shake out whenever I take a tight end early. But are we getting to a point where these 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 top-tier tight ends are just so much better than these sort of middle-tier guys to – I mean, to where we could – I mean, Zach Ertz right now has a 2-3 turn ADP. George Kittle has an ADP, you know, somewhere in the beginning of the third round. Travis Kelsey, you have to take him – middle of the second round right now 
are you interested in taking tight ends early, and how do you feel about the drop-off and sort of this new tier that is that is being created? Is there an advantage to be had to be taking one of these guys, or are you not drafting optimally if you reach for one of them early? No, I think you're drafting just fine if you reach for one early. And I just wrote up today part of the – I finished the What I Learned series. That'll kick, for football guys, we've got all kinds of stuff coming in the offseason for free. Um, and I was looking back over the, the carnage at tight end last year. And the reality is, yes, if you take a tight end early, you're foregoing a running back or a wide receiver or Patrick Mahomes that could be an every-week performer for your team. But the question becomes – do you trust yourself to find production at running back or wide receiver at quarterback late, or do you trust yourself to find production at tight end late? And it was just brutal. It was a blood bloodbath last year and not just with draft picks, but even when you were going to the waiver, well, I'm going to try Mark Andrews or now I'll try Dallas Goddard or, or now I'll try Jarwin or Jake Barton. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. I mean, you were cycling through one after another and drawing these like one and two and three point totals or zeros even. And granted, if you were starting Jimmy Graham or Kyle Rudolph or some tight ends that we drafted and not to mention the guy of Rob Gronkowski, oh, Jordan Reed, yeah, so the, old, the the hurt guys stayed hurt. The old guys played like old guys. <laughs> and then even some of the young guys like David Njoku or, you know, Ter- Trey Burton wasn't exactly a smashing success. There were fits no. and starts. Um, you had the, the safe havens of Ertz and Kelsey. And you had the big hits of Kittle and Ebron. And that was it. Really? Uh, so you you were really hurting. I mean, Evan Ingram, we have a little bit at the end helped us. O.J. Howard had a little stretch that was okay. Jared Cook, I, I guess, was one of the success stories yeah, at tight end. Right. Well, yeah, right. He was with one old guy. Of course, John. leave it to John Gruden to get the best football. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the, if the answer was Jared Cook just needed John Gruden in his life, right. then you were, you were correct. So. I don't feel – I feel much more comfortable that from the 10th round on, I can, obviously a quarterback, but even at running back – I mean, we're just talking about Jalen Samuels. I like Jalen Samuels as a 15th round pick better than I like any tight end I can get in the 15th round. So absolutely build your roster around an early tight end right now, and they're all worth it. Um, they're all in state able situations or even in the case of Kittle, the arrow might still be pointing up because he's somebody that's going to get a quarterback upgrade. When Jimmy Garoppolo comes back, Ebron is a little shakier just because I don't know what his numbers look like. If Jack Doyle was there all year and if they had a legitimate number two receiver, which I think they're going to get to work on this off season and Ebron for his 13 touchdowns was never a touchdown guy in North Carolina. He was never a touchdown guy at Detroit. I know that luck made him a touchdown guy last year, but this could be one of those years like that Vernon Davis year where everything came together. And then he's still a useful player, but not necessarily worth taking as the fourth tight end off the board at a time when there's still a lot of good running backs, wide receivers, and still elite quarterbacks on the board.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.